Thanks very much, everybody, for coming out on a uh, summer's night, or a kind of a summer's night, um, to hear what I have to say. Um, that was Robert Plant doing a version of Satan, Your Kingdom Must Come Down. <coughs> I've nicked the title uh, for tonight's theme from the third novel in Douglas Adams' Hitchhiker's Guide trilogy. Adams was a very funny writer who parodied the arrogance of an overarching explanation of everything in the cosmos. Of course, today, science is pursuing a grand unifying theory in which to accommodate all the laws of nature. And many would describe that pursuit as honorable rather than arrogant. I guess whether it's arrogant uh, or not depends on what we do with the information. Tonight, anyway, I'm hoping to claim the title back not as a statement that we know everything, 
not by a long way, but as a, a statement that we have all we need to know to function as intended, while acknowledging readily that we're not yet doing so. If you like, a grand unifying theory by which we can have a better sense of the relationship between God, science, the history of man's tendency to rebel, and God's fix. I'm going to present that grand unifying theory after tracing a little history. A bit like the work of another comedian, Mel Brooks, who made a film called The History of the World, Part One. Only my history won't be funny at all. This is a, an outline of the ground I'm hoping to cover. The last time I stood up here around this time last year, I gave a talk called It Ain't Necessarily So, and in it I suggested that our reading of the Bible can be enlightened by new information coming from scientific methodology. I think it's important to nail that down clearly, that that's what I said the last time uh, before I proceed tonight. I realized that what I was saying was controversial to some, and perhaps it still is, so I was mightily relieved when uh, I was at the uh, the course, the Faraday Institute course in Union College a couple of weeks ago uh, when Prof. Stephen Williams began his talk with a comment, scientific revelation forces me to rethink how I read the Bible. So as I say, I, I seem to be in, in good company. <coughs> At the same course, though, David Livingstone gave an elegant presentation of how cultural context can affect our receipt of both the Bible's message and information from science. The take-home message for me was the need for us to guard against having our minds clouded by societal or cultural norms. So tonight I'd like to do two things. First of all, I'd aim to identify a few cultural elements which, if we're not aware of them, might get in the way of our understanding God's plan for mankind and his church, as revealed to us in the Bible, particularly by St. Paul. Secondly, I aim to put science in its place. That was a term David used in his Faraday talk, but he was talking about how scientific information was received differently in different geographical locations within the West. I'm referring to correcting the increasing tendency of our entire Western society, despite being labeled postmodern, to see science as the savior of mankind, or rather to see ourselves as our own saviors with, armed with the powerful tool of science. I'm going to be trying to integrate points from two books. Peter Hitchens, The Rage Against God, and uh, Tom Wright's Fresh Perspectives on Paul. The idea um, of integrating these books, I mean, they're very different in character and in purpose, but the idea of integrating them is to contrast the empire of man with the kingdom of God at various key points throughout history. I hope this will give some clarity regarding what should be our priorities now and give us a framework to recognize what to treasure and what to reject in our society. If there's one text I could take to underpin what I'm saying tonight, it's Philippians 2 verse 12. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. So Peter Hitchens is a journalist who's worked and written for a wide range of newspapers and magazines. He was a resident reporter 
in the former Soviet Union for several years. He studied politics at York, was a Trotskyist in his youth, and subsequently a member of the British Labour Party. He campaigned for Ken Livingstone in 1979. However, he moved to the right politically, he was a member of the Conservative Party from 1997 to 2003, and stood against Michael Pertillo in 1999. Currently, he's with the Mail on Sunday, and he appears regularly on Question Time and This Week with Andrew Neil. In 2010, he won the Orwell Prize in political journalism. And last month, he was booed on Question Time for expressing a socially conservative position on the sexualization of children. He's the younger brother of Christopher Hitchens, who's well known for his militant atheism and for his book, God is Not Great. But unlike Christopher, Peter abandoned the atheism of his youth and converted to Christianity. And that's a large part of the reason why I was attracted to read his book, The Rage Against God. Uh, I've presented a little of Tom Wright's stuff before, but uh, he is a highly published New Testament scholar. He's re just recently retired from his position as Anglican Bishop of Durham. He's got evangelical roots and describes himself as both Reformed and Calvinist in his theology. But some of his work has drawn negative comment from conservative evangelical scholars such as John Piper and Don Carson. Recently, he's been in the doghouse because he aligned himself with a so-called new perspective on Paul. His critics accuse him of promoting works righteousness, that is, that our standing before God depends on good works rather than faith alone. Personally, I think that there is merit in at least some aspects of his teaching in this area, but I know and I'm very aware that there are uh, proper scholars in the congregation, um, not least Gary Burnett, whose PhD was on Paul's position on individual and corporate salvation, so I'm glad he's not here tonight. <coughs> Even though I'm not a New Testament scholar, I recognize that scholarly thought often covers a wide range of opinion. And so I think there's good reason for non-theologians like me and many here to engage and try to understand what scholars are saying. I also like a challenge, and I hope I'm not being foolhardy. I think I need to say a few words about the new perspective on Paul before I go any further. The first thing to say is it isn't really new anymore since it was kicked off by Lutheran theologian Christer Stendhal in 1963 and it was promoted subsequently by Sanders and Dunn and their names are more associated with it. It's a shift in the way some Protestant scholars interpret Paul's writings and controversially it tries to remove what they see as some unhelpful cultural aspects of medieval scholarship, particularly relating to the separation of faith and works. It asks us to consider Paul's writings in the context of the cultural and theological understanding of first century Judaism. So it makes use, this new perspective makes use of religious and cultural documents written around the same time as Paul's letters, so-called Second Temple literature, to help interpretation of the canonical scriptures. Personally, I hold to the notion expressed in Article 6 of the 39 Anglican Articles, that scripture contains all things necessary to salvation. So... I find myself asking, does this use of extra-biblical literature give it a more elevated place in our theology 
and practice than it should have. I've also an inbuilt reluctance to jump on what may, might be a trendy bandwagon that disregards all too easily uh, orthodox scholarship over several centuries. And certainly some old perspective supporters argue that contextual and historical approaches can lead to biased interpretation. Meanwhile, new, pers new perspective supporters consider that medieval scholarship has introduced its own biases. I think I've reached a position in my own mind that context and history are appropriate interpretative tools, and I can't really hold that we should apply the Bible um, to our context uh, culturally and deny that Paul was writing with the cultural context of his peers in the first century very much in mind. New perspective scholars don't hold a unified position. Wright has said there are probably almost as many new perspective positions as there are writers espousing it, and I disagree with most of them. I imagine that's why he called his book Fresh Perspectives. However, there's no doubt that he has differences with old perspective scholars too. So in this talk, I'll be trying to advocate some of Wright's fresh perspectives rather than those of the new perspective per se. Wright argues that in the Old Testament, the basic sin was idolatry, elevation of something in the created order, including man himself, to God's level of worth. It seems to me that idolatry is addressed up front in the first and second of the Ten Commandments. It leads to failure of humans to reflect the image of God, and Israel wasn't immune from it, and experienced the recurrent themes of exile and restoration in the Old Testament. It also strikes me that in Eden, man yielded to temptation to try to be like God rather than obey him. And at Babel, he was proud and aspired to build a tower toward heaven by his own cleverness and skill. At Sinai, he worshipped a golden calf. When they eventually entered Canaan, the Hebrew people were commanded to destroy all the cult objects associated with the false goddess Asherah, but didn't. And then in exile in Babylon, we have Nebuchadnezzar, attempting to compel the Israelites to bow down to his big gold statue, with the positive sign of some Israelites who were faithful to God and refused to do so. Babylon is a great archetypal human empire, and it was where the Hebrew people spent quite some time trying to puzzle out how God was going to be true to his promises. And we can imagine them singing as they puzzled.
The Old Testament Hebrews then were critiqued for looking to powerful empires for help, for example, in Isaiah, because they were trusting in man's ability rather than God's. And it seems to me that not much has changed in our society today. Tom Wright states that all Paul's New Testament teachings in his letters should be understood and interpreted within the framework and emphases of his, A, his Jewish monotheism, B, who the people of God are, and C, covenant theology, which is obviously closely related to the first two. Wright considers that we need to read Paul with this covenant framework in mind if we want to avoid misinterpreting at least some aspects of his message. He highlights that the reformers were particularly focused on the relationship of faith and works of the individual believer, but says controversially that for Paul this is not central. What is central, even when he's addressing Gentile audiences, is that the Jewish Messiah has come and is the fulfillment of the one creator God's covenant, by which the one true God planned to bless the whole world. As a covenant theologian, Wright rejects a notion that seems widespread today, that Jesus was God's plan B after the failure of the people of Israel to deliver God's purposes. He cites Romans 2 and 3 to demonstrate this, and he says Paul clearly saw continuity between the Old Testament covenants and what we understand as a new covenant. He points out that Paul frequently takes the story of God's dealings with Old Testament Israel as the framework within which to present who Jesus is and what he's achieved, and how this was God's plan all along. Paul draws particularly on the, new, the idea of a new exodus, with Jesus leading the way to the promised land of new creation. Wright says that Paul's underlying target of critique is surprisingly not Judaism, but paganism. He says the works references in Paul's letters are aimed largely at correcting mistakes some churches were making on the badges of membership of God's people, rather than him trying to pull apart faith and Christian living. You'll remember that Nicholas Waldersdorf drew attention to the ambiguity of meaning in the Greek dikaios and related words, so that when translated into English as righteousness, the justice meaning is lost. Well, Wright makes the same point about dikaios, but he goes further and highlights other words and phrases in the New Testament with debated meaning or translation. As I understand it, and there are others here who would know better than me, translators often use literary context as one of several tools to help get a better rendering in English. And Wright suggests that a couple of key phrases in Paul's writings take on a different meaning when we use Paul's Judaistic covenant framework as a contextual translating tool. Paul's use of the Greek word pistis is one important example, usually translated as faith or belief. However, Wright states that many recent studies of Paul's period have concluded that its primary and most common meaning was faithfulness, meaning firm commitment in an interpersonal relationship. In fact, the word could almost be synonymous with obedience when the people in the relationship held different status levels, for example, a slave or a servant being obedient to his master. Passages such as Ephesians 2, verses 8 and 9, 
can have their meaning altered substantially as a result. This passage is a fam familiar Reformation text, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. Salvation is a gracious gift of God, rather than something we can do ourselves and can boast about, but changing faith to faithfulness does up the ante of active participation in doing good rather than merely intellectual belief, and is, of course, entirely consistent with chapter 2 of James. It also seems to me to be consistent with the next verse in Ephesians 2, for we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. And also consistent with uh, Philippians 1 verse 19, the one who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. Well done, good and faithful servant, in Matthew 25 spring to mind, as does not everyone who calls me Lord, Lord, will enter, but he who does the will of my Father, in Matthew 7. It also seems to fit with Jeremiah 31 and Romans 8. Elsewhere, Paul draws a very clear distinction between works of the Old Testament law and works empowered by the Spirit. But the translation shake-up doesn't end there. There's then the phrase, pistis Christu, which is linguistically ambiguous as well. It could mean either our faith in Christ or the faithfulness of Christ or even our own faithfulness to God, just like that which Jesus had. So Galatians 2 verse 16 becomes, uh, know that a man is not justified by observing the law, but through the faithfulness of Jesus the Messiah. So we too have, sorry, I've lost my place. So we too have put our faith in Messiah Jesus that we may be justified by the faithfulness of Christ and not by works of the law, because by observing the law, no one will be justified. Wright continually asserts that the first century Judaistic view in Paul's mind wrestled with what was wrong with the world, saw the one true God as under an obligation as creator to fix it, that he had promised to do so, and would keep his promises to Israel. Wright argues that what Paul is doing repeatedly throughout his letters is demonstrating that Jesus is God's covenant faithfulness in action. The phrase pistis Christu then carries the significance of the faithfulness of Christ in keeping the covenant when Old Testament Israel had failed. Wright argues, again controversially, that Paul's main emphasis is not about how individuals come into a right relationship with God, but rather how the God of Abraham has fulfilled his promises through Jesus the Messiah, who has unveiled the Dikaiosin justice righteousness of God. Paul is saying that God's promised solution wasn't still in the future. It had come forward right into the present, changing everything.
So much for God's plan and how he put it into action. How about man's cooperation with the plan? Did that change much after Eden, Canaan and Babylon? Tom Wright points out that Paul didn't just live in a Jewish world or context. He straddled three worlds. Second Temple Judaism, Greek culture, and the Roman rulers of his day. For Paul, belonging to the Messiah's body meant embracing an identity rooted in Judaism, literally. Even if you were a Gentile, lived out in the Greek world and placing a counterclaim against Caesar's claim to be the ultimate power. Paul feels perfectly at home in Greek discussion, but as he puts it in 2 Corinthians 10 verse 5, he takes every thought captive to obey the Messiah. Wright regularly interchanges Christ, the, the familiar Christ that you'd be uh, used to in the text with Messiah because he believes that it brings out a, uh, a deeper richness that is often lost in those of us who are not steeped in Judaism. In the account in Acts 17, Paul uses imagery of pagan poets. 
but he infuses it with fresh content. It's not exactly what Steve was trying to do with the arts in Fitzroy. Symbolism was important in the Roman Empire and the cross was a well-known symbol, both politically and theologically. It stood for Caesar's might and Caesar's divinity. Paul steals it and gives it rebirth as a symbol of a power higher than Caesar and God's naked love rather than Caesar's naked oppressive might. The risk of idolatry didn't disappear as we move into New Testament times, but the, new, the Jews knew that they weren't to worship Caesar as God. Yet Paul used his Roman citizenship when it suited, and much of what he had to say was steeped in concepts related to the Roman world in ways which went may be lost on us today. So what, you might say? The Bible's meaning is pretty clear. We don't need all this cultural context stuff, whether it's first century Jewish understanding or insight into the first century Roman Empire. Well, I'll not be going into detail, but a lack of Roman contextual understanding is arguably just the reason why folk like Harold Camping misinterpret Paul and cause all sorts of harm and damage as they mislead others. Indeed, we might say that uh, a contributory factor in why large numbers of folk in North America see no need to take care of the planet are because, one, they don't have a, a sense of continuity between old and new covenants. Two, they don't, sh don't share Paul's Judaistic understanding of apocalypse and that it frames his understanding of Jesus' achievement and role. And three, most importantly, in the context of so-called rapture, they miss entirely the Roman imagery there. And many folk outside North America here don't realize that they are called to engage positively with the culture that they find themselves in. I hated history at school. But I've learnt a little bit of history from Wright, uh, and he is a credible academic historian. Civil war followed Julius Caesar's murder, but eventually Octavian, having taken on the title Augustus, reigned over the empire for the last two decades BC and the first 14 years AD. Freedom, justice, peace, and salvation were the imperial themes or claims you could expect to meet in the mass media of the day. Statues, coins, poetry, song, speeches, mosaics, they all repeated the good news or gospel spread by the emperor and his minions. Peace and security is imperial rhetoric, and hence the significance of this verse in the first letter to the Thessalonians. The terms Saviour and Lord and even Son of God are classic Caesar titles. Jesus is recorded most often as using the ambiguous title Son of Man for himself, but Paul uses Son of God to describe him, reflecting an Old Testament messianic usage and displacing the title from Caesar. Virgil, Horace, Livy and other writers produced a great narrative of history, reaching its climax in Caesar. Paul's account in Romans 9 to 11, with history reaching its climax in Jesus, directly mirrors and challenges this. 
Romans 13 uh, is a demotion of earthly rulers from the position they claim to occupy. But Paul still discourages civil disobedience. The prophets, for example, Isaiah, Amos, and Daniel, had frequently critiqued pagan empires. But things were never black and white. When three Jews are rescued from the fiery furnace, or Daniel from the land of Dians, or back further, Joseph from slavery, they're all given top jobs in the pagan civil service. Jeremiah tells the exiles to seek Babylon's good as long as they live there. Rulers may be wicked and will be judged, but God wants the world ruled rather than descend into chaos. And as people must learn to live under pagan rule, even though it requires constant vigilance against compromise with paganism itself. Wright says that the Philippians verse, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, has puzzled interpreters for years. But if we read Paul's writing, holding covenant and empire in mind, it makes sense. Paul was not saying, work to earn for God's forgiveness. Philippi had been a Roman colony for about a century, and those living there would have, would have benefited from the security and the stability that that brought. The benefits were highlighted by the New Testament commentator, Monty. They take everything we have, and not just from us, from our fathers, and from our fathers' fathers. And from our fathers' fathers' fathers. Yeah. And from our fathers' 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 fathers. Yours, sir, don't labor the point. And what have they ever given us in return? The aqueduct? What? The aqueduct. Oh, yeah, yeah, they did give us that. Uh, that's true, yeah. And the sanitation. Oh, yeah, the sanitation, man. Do you remember what the city used to be like? Yeah, all right, I'll grant you, the aqueduct and the sanitation are two things the Romans have done. And the roads. Well, yeah, obviously yeah. the roads. I mean, the roads go without saying, don't they? But apart from the sanitation, the aqueduct and the roads... Irrigation. Medicine. Yeah. Education. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, all right, fair enough. And the wine. Yeah, yeah, that's something we'd really miss, Reg, if the Romans left. <laughs> Public baths. And it's safe to walk in the streets at night now, Reg. Yeah, they certainly know how to keep order. Let's face it, the only ones who could in a place like this. <laughs> <laughs> All right, but apart from the sanitation, the medicine, education, wine, public order, irrigation, road, the fresh water system and public health, what have the Romans ever done for us? Brought peace. Oh, peace. Shut up. When Paul says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, he's asking the Christians in Philippi to work out what it means in practice to live in a Roman colony and culture with its many benefits, while acknowledging a different salvation and a different Lord. When he writes to the Corinthians about meat offered to idols, he's giving another pointer on how Christians are to live in a pagan society. And I suggest that we today are supposed to be working out our salvation in exactly the same way. Nicholas Walterstorff described his life's work in philosophy, an area often dominated by secular, non-Christian thinking. He felt he had to participate in the activity, but work out how to do it as a Christian. So we need to ask ourselves, where is paganism today? Where is the challenge to God's authority and providence? Where do we need to do battle?
who or what is claiming to be our salvation apart from God or claiming to ensure our safety? Where should we not be compromising morally? Unfortunately, as in Egypt, Rome, and Babylon, it's often not black and white, as was evidenced by the very public disagreement last month between the Work and Pension Secretary, Ian Duncan Smith, who's a devout Christian, and the Archbishop of Canterbury. It's a serious job we have to do, one which maybe should generate fear and trembling, and I'm going to come back to it at the end. But I want to look first at another couple of time points in history. The importance of the Enlightenment period is inescapable as it gave birth to the rise of reason and the scientific method. Wikipedia describes it as a cultural movement of intellectuals in 18th century Europe to mobilize the power of reason to reform society. Kant described it as mankind's final coming of age, the emancipation of the human consciousness from an immature state of ignorance and error. A general process of secularization and rationalization set in. There was a spectrum of Enlightenment thinkers ranging from radicals to conservatives such as Isaac Newton and Descartes. The conservatives looked for an accommodation between rationalist and faith understandings. And then there were also a bunch of counter-Enlightenment thinkers defending the old ways. Critics of the Enlightenment, such as the Romantics in the 19th century, contended that his goals were too ambitious. Nonetheless, reason and the scientific method have brought much knowledge and good. Peter Hitchens wasn't brought up in a Christian home, but he was exposed to Christian thinking at school, and at 12 he made a conscious decision to reject Christianity and the notion of God. In the years which followed, he embraced Trotskyism. He knows a bit about the Bolshevik Revolution, and we don't need to dig too deeply to find the significance of the Bolshevik dream in the history of man's aspirations and desires. The Bolsheviks came to power in Russia during the revolution of 1917 and founded a republic which subsequently became the main part of the Soviet Union. Hitchens gives many examples from the communist world of evil acts being justified for the greater good. He quotes Leon Trotsky in 1938, morality is a product of social development. There is nothing invariable about it. It serves social interests. These interests are contradictory. Stalin followed the same code as Trotsky, but he thought it served the proletariat cause to have Trotsky murdered in 1940. In Marxism and in any human-based code, there is no court of higher appeal as to what is right. History written by the victors is said to be the judge. Sidney and Beatrice Webb published an enormous book supportive of Russian communism in 1940. It was called Soviet Communism, A New Civilization. Chapter 11 describes Lenin's atheism being the basis for all his teaching. Interestingly, that chapter is entitled Science and the Salvation of Mankind. It's beginning to sound a little familiar. The Webb's recording of history tells its own tale teaching of religion to children was banned in schools in 1917. In 1922, it was banned even singly to children in churches, church buildings, or private homes. Professional magazines for teachers discussed how best to destroy religious instinct among children. God and Christ were to be treated like fairy tale figures. 
Ghosts and Goblins. The Church's Wealth can be discussed while suggesting the money would be better spent on road repair and buying shoes for children. Diphtheria can be spread by eating the bread at communion. The Easter Kiss can spread syphilis. Mixed-sex communist youth leagues had meetings timed to coincide with church services. Hitchens writes, Never at any stage were they willing to allow children to revere Christ-born, Christ-crucified, and Christ-risen, and they never relented from their ultimate aim of installing a wholly materialist, scientistic consciousness in the minds of the people under their rule. Intelligent revolutionaries are always most interested in the young. They know that the ideas and characters of mature adults are generally fully formed and cannot easily be altered. If they can control the schools and the youth movements, they can stamp out unwelcome beliefs in a generation or two. Russia attempted to destroy completely any supernatural interpretation of life. The Soviet state had laid the foundations of repressive apparatus long before Stalin came along. A union of the godless was established, which later became the League of the Militant Godless. Again, Hitchens says, The biggest fake miracle staged in human history was the claim that Soviet Russia was a new civilization of equality, peace, love, truth, science, and progress. Everyone now knows that it was a prison, a slum, a return to primitive barbarism, a kingdom of lies where scientists and doctors feared offending the secret police, and that its elite were corrupt and lived in secret luxury. I saw this myself firsthand when I lived there. Yet, it was the clever people, those who prided themselves on being unencumbered with superstition, those who viewed religion as a feature of the childhood of humanity, who fell for this swindle in their tens of thousands. Hitchens says he hasn't seen a more powerful argument for the fallen nature of man than those countries in which man sets himself up to replace God with the state. It strikes me that the problem of advancing science and a naturalistic worldview as a solution to our problems is that science does not foster love. It is nothing to say on the subject. It's deficient, and it's hard to see that a strictly material worldview even has room for love, beyond it being just a useful feeling to have evolved to help our species reproduce and to protect the next generation. No wonder Dawkins called our genes selfish. What 
As a result of his day job of writing for a national newspaper about the inner workings of the British Labour Party and his time living in Moscow and Mogadishu, Peter Hitchens felt that the secular socialism he had embraced with such vigour in his youth turned out to be false. He realised he had surrounded himself for 20 years with folk who were all atheistic and that he was living for two purposes, pleasure and ambition. He began to realise that those in times gone by were neither crude nor ignorant, but people of great skill and engineering genius, ability that was not contradicted or blocked by faith, but enhanced by it. The Holy Spirit spoke to him through art, 
his return to faith was triggered rather unfashionably these days by fear he experienced looking at a painting of the Last Judgment in France. The fear took him by surprise as he had initially mocked that the artist couldn't find something more useful to paint. He began to make different moral choices and his new faith led to a strong but unexpected desire to marry his then unbelieving wife in a church. The promises in the service concentrated his mind. So did those that followed in the baptisms, first of his daughter and then of his wife who had been raised as a Marxist atheist. Looking back at Soviet Russia, he asks, must we discover this all over again? And he answers, I fear so. A new and intolerant utopianism seeks to drive the remaining traces of Christianity from the laws and constitutions of Europe and North America. This utopianism relies for human goodness on doctrines of human rights derived from human desires. George Orwell wrote, revolution does not mean red flags and street fighting. It means a fundamental shift in power. So-called new, athe new atheism clearly isn't new, but this, this time they've got some jokes. And with Ricky Gervais, Jeremy Hardy, Eddie Izzard and Stephen Fry, we have modern-day Virgils, Horaces, and Livies to, sp to spread the gospel of man and his methods. Just as the Bolsheviks preached, with science we're going to make the world an ever better place. There is no God, nor do we need one or several. In fact, if he exists, he either is impotent or he's nasty and capricious or he doesn't give us stuff. If the jokes about God or Christianity temporarily get you down, here's a wee song which might help, performed by Elvis Costello. Please welcome back to the stage Zoe Duchanel, Matt Ward, Jonathan Rice, and Jenny Lewis. <laughs> We're going to do a song now, it's written by a great pal of mine, Nick Lowe, he wrote this in 1974. Walked on 
So I'll ask the rhetorical question that I raised earlier. Has man changed much since Eden, Canaan, Babylon, and the days of the Roman Empire? Today, and not for the first time, we hear the claim, see what knowledge we have gained. Aren't we great? We've done this all by ourselves. See how great are our methods. Science is our salvation. Peter Hitchens sees the modern revolt against God as very much like the Russian Revolution but he notices that atheists try to distance himself from that revolution. If and he writes this, if atheism in practice appears at any point to have had bad consequences, then that is because it took on the character of religion. So this murder, that massacre, that purge just do not count. If religious people do good things with good consequences, it's because they're really atheists without knowing it. Soviet power was organically linked to atheism and materialist rationalism. When its crimes were still unknown or concealed, it had the support of the liberal intelligentsia, as new atheism does today. The Soviet system was faith in the greatness of humanity and the perfectibility of human society. Utopianism is dangerous precisely because its supporters think that they themselves are good. They think they have a knowledge of good and evil, and how to fix the evil. Sounds to me like a concept straight out of Eden or Babel. I might skip this one for time. It was going to be Elton John and uh, Leon Russell singing the song, If It Wasn't For Bad, You'd Be Good. Militant atheists are hard at work today with propaganda which could have been right at home in the League of the Militant Godless in Russia. They continue to state that it's only morons who believe in God. The Brights movement describes itself as going to extraordinary effort to change the thinking of society to exclude anything but material rationalism and present atheism as something cheerful and bright. One of the early chapters in The Rage Against God is entitled The Generation Who Were Too Clever to Believe. Hitchens describes how his own mind worked when he became an atheist. 
I imagined this newfound atheism was a tremendously original thing to do, a shrewd blow at the dull believers who needed to be scared or bribed into goodness. This is one of the principal joys of the newly fledged atheist and a continuing joy for many rather experienced non-believers. Praying was a comical folly. Hymns so much wailing at an empty heaven. Churches were absurd buildings in need of urgent conversion into something more useful or of demolition. Anyone could write a portentous book and call it scripture. I would be happy because I would be freed from those things whereof my conscience was afraid, and I could claim to be virtuous too. I did immediately recognize that some of the virtues could now be dispensed with, and several of the supposed sins might turn out to be expedient, if not positively delightful. I acted accordingly for several important and irrecoverable years. Widespread dismissal of faith by the intelligent and educated seemed then to be definitive proof that the thing was a fake, mainly because I wanted such proof. The blatant truth that we hold opinions because we wish to and reject them because we wish to is so obvious that it's seldom mentioned. It did not cross my mind that I had any low motives for adopting this view. Unlike Christians, atheists have a high opinion of their own virtue. Thomas Nagel, professor of philosophy and law at NYU, who is an unbeliever, has said, I want atheism to be true. I am curious whether there is anyone who is genuinely indifferent as to whether there is a God. Anyone who, whatever his actual belief, doesn't particularly want one of the answers to be correct. Hitchens asks, as in the title of his book, why is there such a fury against religion now? And he answers, only one reliable force stands in the way of the power of the strong over the weak. Only one reliable force restrains the hand of the man of power. And in an age of power worship, the Christian religion has become the principal obstacle to the desire of atheist utopians for absolute power. Concepts of sin, conscience, eternal life and divine justice get in the way of ends justifying means to achieve utopia, as Trotsky realized. The Christian faith opposes the worship of human power. Secularism seeks to remove the remaining Christian restraints on power and the remaining traces of Christian moral law in the civil and criminal codes. And like the Bolsheviks, its proponents have their eyes on children. Richard Dawkins has said that Roman Catholic indoctrination of children is probably a worse abuse than the sexual abuse perpetrated by some priests. Philip Pullman, the atheist writer of children's books, also realizes the importance of using fiction to influence the young. He has said, once upon a time is always a more effective instructor than thou shalt not. It seems that it only counts as indoctrination if the influences we bring to children are supportive of a faith position. Hitchens writes, It is ridiculous to pretend that it is a neutral act to inform an infant that the heavens are empty, that the universe is founded on chaos rather than love, and that his grandparents on dying have ceased to exist altogether. But in a free country, parents should be able to do this. The same freedom should be extended to parents of Christian and other faiths. 
However, the new anti-theism is emphatically not just an opinion seeking its place in a plural society. It is a dogmatic tyranny in the making. I can see no purpose in this suggestion that religion is child abuse, apart from an attempt by atheists to create the atmosphere in which religious instruction of children can be regulated and perhaps prevented by law. If you think that sounds like he's exaggerating or paranoid, have a look at this. This is on the number 10 website. It was just a petition, but nonetheless, I was surprised to see it. And the idea is catching on on social media websites. I find a whole slew of Facebook pages dedicated to persuading Facebookers that passing faith to children was abuse. Can you read that from back there? Yeah. The psychologist Nicholas Humphrey said in an Amnesty International lecture, in the same way as Amnesty works tirelessly to free political prisoners the world over, we should work to free the children of the world from the religions which with parental approval, damage minds too young to understand what is happening to them. Priestly groping of child bodies is disgusting, but it may be less harmful in the long run than priestly subversion of child minds. He goes on. At home, parents are allowed, even expected, to determine for their children what counts as truth and falsehood, right and wrong. Children, I'll argue, have a human right not to have their hands crippled by exposure to other people's bad ideas, no matter who these other people are. And we as a society have a duty to protect them from it. So we should no more allow parents to teach their children to believe, for example, the truth of the Bible, than we should allow parents to knock their children's teeth out or lock them in a dungeon. Children have a right, too, to be suckered by the truth. And we as a society have a duty to provide it. Therefore, we should feel as much obliged to pass on to our children the best scientific and philosophical understanding of the natural world, to teach, for example, the truths of evolution and cosmology or the methods. He goes on to compare religious teaching to female genital mutilation. Sounds very much like the Bolshevik approach. No. 
they tell you, no matter what they teach you, what you believe is true. And in that song, love was very much center stage. 1 Corinthians 15 describes the fixing by new creation of what is wrong with the world. The undoing of the problem of man going back as far as Adam. We don't know the detail of how things will ultimately look but we've been given clear direction and we know some things are guaranteed. In the meantime, like Paul, we need to straddle more than one world and we need to take every thought captive and make it obey the Messiah. We need to be awake to the fact that we are still in a battle while also understanding that the war has been won. It's just that many don't realize that and damage still persists in human society and relationships. We're invited in partnership with God to bring healing to that damage. In working out our salvation, we need wisdom to work out who and what are the for the kingdom and who and what are still against it. 
And I would argue that science is a tool which can be very much for the kingdom, a route to understanding the world better and deliver benefits to mankind. But sometimes, because of how some wish to use it, it's a bit like Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego working in the pagan civil service in Babylon. We need to resist the notion that we are great and our own saviours, whether through science or anything else. And we don't have to do this by ourselves. In Romans 8, Paul reminds us that in the original Exodus, God provided the Shekinah, his tabernacling presence, as his people's guide and companion. In Paul's retelling of the Exodus, the Spirit takes the place of the Shekinah, leading his people to the promised land, the new creation. The Spirit forms the first fruits, the sign of a larger harvest to come, the first down payment guaranteeing that the rest will be delivered. Wright says that in Romans, the redemption of human beings is not presented as merely for their own sake. We are supposed to bear witness. Alan Gaston gave a memorable talk here a couple of years ago in which he picked up on the UTV slogan at the time, it's all about you. And he said, that's a lie. It's not all about you. Paul encourages the early church to view itself as a new model of what it means to be human as God intended. And Paul's challenge to the rest of the world to abandon its idols and ascribe worth to the one true God brought him into conflict with society. And we have the example of the rat in Ephesus. And that conflict is arguably to the fore whenever we oppose those for whom idols are big business. We should expect the same conflict. Most societies, our own included, can't stand the apparent arrogance of any group that claims it has the model for the new human race or gets in the way of society's desires. From reading Paul, Tom Wright suggests three types of new creation which we are to model. Reconstruction of the self through the love of God. Not cogito ergo sum, I think, therefore I am, but amor ergo sum, I am loved, therefore I am. Secondly, reconstruction of knowing, and science claims to help us know things. Modernity claimed to be able to know all things objectively. Postmodernity showed how that can be used for power play. But postmodernity has problems of subjectivity. With Paul, the overlying or overarching principle of knowing is love, which transcends the objective-subjective divide and stops the reduction of everything to commodity. And thirdly, reconstruction of the great story. Away from self-centeredness, self-aggrandizement, exploitation, power-grabbing, and domination, and toward humility, giving credit and worship to God, and loving our neighbors as ourselves. Peter Hitchens' brother Christopher wrote in God is Not Great, The order to love thy neighbor as thyself is too extreme and too strenuous to be obeyed. Humans are not so constituted as to care for others as much as themselves. He thinks it's a wholly unrealistic proposition, but then he thinks the Holy Spirit isn't real, and without the Holy Spirit, he'd be absolutely right. How ironic 
that he's echoing Paul's teaching on the works of the law. So here, I think the full weight of Philippians 2, working out our salvation, is felt. You'll remember that in Paul's letter, this verse is immediately preceded by a call to be humble like Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, humbled himself, and became obedient to death. And the sentence, work out your salvation, continues, for it is God who works in you. So I claimed at the start of this session that I was going to present all you need to know about life, the universe, and everything. Not all there is to know, but all we need to know to function as intended. Well, this is it, what, I, what I'll call the grand unifying model, and it goes like this. The one true God, the creator, had a plan from the start to live in harmonious relationship with his creation. He invi invited mankind to join him in faithful, obedient relationship. Man and woman aspired to do things differently. They were dissatisfied with their role and wanted to grasp qualities of the divine which weren't on offer. As far back as can be remembered, we have felt we should determine what is good and what is evil rather than accept God's definitions. As far back as can be remembered, we have been impressed by our own abilities, failed to recognize those abilities as gifts from God, and sought to use them to build what we thought would be a better world. Empire after empire came and went, chasing this illusion, and continue to do so. Selfishness and might have dominated. Much harm has been done. The one true creator God knew this would happen and had a plan from the start to deal with it. A plan which was consistent with and actually revealed his character. His plan all along involved him taking the initiative and fixing what had gone wrong. He promised to do so to Abraham and St. Paul painstakingly shows how he kept this promise in the life, death and resurrection of Jesus, the Israelite Messiah for the benefit of all mankind. The restoration has begun. We can enter into restored relationship with God now by faith, and we are asked to model with humility how mankind is supposed to be, summarized in the profound soundbite of love for God and neighbor. The one God has sent his spirit to enable us to do what we couldn't do by our own strength, and we need to depend on him and engage with principalities and powers which still deny who is in charge. The same spirit is our guarantee that we will deliver action pleasing to God, and that at some point in the future, every knee shall bow and recognize who is in fact in charge. That's uh, all you need to know. You might even call it a creed. Tom Wright invites us to stand on the rock that Jesus is Lord as new creatures called, justified and glorified from which we go about the dangerous and exhilarating task of being, knowing and telling. After all the debating about new and old perspectives, he argues that applying Paul's teaching in the 21st century may turn out not to be so much a matter of comprehension but of courage. I think he's correct. 
As we try to live out this new life, we should expect to meet resistance because we are challenging man's craving for power and control. However, we need not be intimidated by that resistance. This is the last song. Jesus Christ. 